0: Well, we have arrived at the final formal lesson in this study on the attributes of God. As, as you, you know in your books, there is an appendix on the names of God. I would suggest keeping that um, and using it in your, in your own studies and, and maybe even in family worship that might be a good study that you could go through and we may come back to that at some point uh, in the future. I, I do like to make a habit of studying the attributes of God uh, regularly, now that doesn't mean every year or every so many years, but it seems like you can almost kind of feel, or I can almost kind of feel when the time is coming, when we, we need to get back into a, some sort of study on, on who God is and be reminded, and so we'll, uh, that, that'll be in the future. We always need to keep Him in our attention. And it is tempting to, for me anyway, it's tempting to recap everything that we've learned, um, but I want to just begin by hitting just a few high points. Uh, things that have been and are still very essential to our understanding of the nature and character of God before we jump into this final chapter. Remember, first, there, there are six things here. The first one is that God is one. And when we say God is one, we mean, yes, that He is exclusively one. There is only one God. But further than that, that God is one in Himself that the divine essence, the divine being, is one simple essence or one simple being. Secondly, God is three. God subsists in three persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit. So He's one and yet subsisting in three persons. Number three, all of God's attributes that we have studied, are simply God. They're not parts of God, they are God. Every attribute that we've looked at, all all we have been doing is looking at the one simple God. We've not looked at parts of God, we don't come to the end of the study and say, now, if you put all of this together, you will compile God. No, He is who He is, He is simple. We could say of these attributes, they are God. And in that sense, it is appropriate to say that they are one in God. We consider them distinctly, separately, because of our finite capacities. But in God, they are one. Now, that is not to say holiness is love or love is justice. In our understanding, we do distinguish and view them separately, but in God... They are one. They are simply God. Number four, all of the works of God toward His creation are shared by each of the three persons. All that God does outside of Himself, He does as God. Father, Son, and Spirit. That's who He is. Number five, some of those works, are, or we, probably all of those works, are appropriated to a particular person because that work reveals some important trait of that so, it's not wrong to attribute a particular work to a particular person of the Godhead as long as we keep in mind that each person is the fullness of God. Every one of them is, each person is God. And God is three persons. And then, number six six, the God who is is a God who saves. Essential to all that we know of God is that He is a saving God. There is no God in heaven who is not a saving God. God loves to save sinners. God is glorified by saving sinners. He loves to save. And so most recently we've been looking at that saving work of God as it relates to the three persons distinctly. The Father purposes to save and sends His Son to be the Savior. The Son comes, takes on the nature of a man, fulfills the requirements of the law and the requirements of our salvation for us in His life and death. Now He lives to give us life and to make intercession for us. We saw that last Lord's Day. Well, now we come to the work of the Holy Spirit. The the work of the Holy Spirit. And you'll remember all the way back from chapter 4, We learned that the Spirit of God is God. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're simply talking about God. And therefore, the work of the Spirit is the work of God. It's God's work. Now, all of that, by way of introduction, we jump into chapter 47, the Spirit's work in salvation. And I'll read now. He says, in our brief consideration of God as Savior, we must be careful to include the role of the person of the Holy Spirit. We must never forget that our salvation is a Trinitarian work involving not only the Father and the Son, but also the Holy Spirit. In this chapter, we will learn that He is as essential to our salvation as the Father and the Son. Now, there's nothing wrong with what He just said, but I just want to point this out. Notice in this language, be careful to include the Spirit. Salvation involves not only the Father, but the Son, and also the Holy Spirit. That's not erroneous, but if we're not careful, we begin to talk like or sound like there are three distinct beings, and the Father and the Son are over here, but don't forget to include the Spirit, that there's only one God. Wherever the Son is working, that's God, and God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We have to be careful with our language. Oftentimes when we, we, be, we become loose in our speech, we begin to believe what we're saying rather than what we, what we mean. Uh, when, it, when it comes to the Holy Spirit especially, another reason why I think this is important, the reason that our language needs to be uh, as precise as we can be, the reason that it has been hammered out on the anvil down through the ages is because of heresies people who intend wrong doctrine, not in their minds, but we would say it's unbiblical doctrine, you will identify that by their language, by what they say. So we have to be careful in what we say that we are articulating the proper language or the proper doctrines. For example, uh, if you ever hear of someone who is describing or speaking of the Holy Spirit, and they say, "I I really believe that we... We all are in need of the help of Holy Spirit. Did you notice what I just did there? I did not say the Holy Spirit. I said Holy Spirit, as if that were His name. Now, that might seem like nothing. That is a a distinctive mark of the Jehovah's Witnesses. If you hear a Jehovah's Witness talk, they will talk about Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit. It seems like a small thing, but once you catch these things, all of a sudden you, you realize, I need to watch how I speak. And the same is with, with all of the work of God. So hopefully it doesn't come across as nitpicking or, or anything. I, I'm, I'm not emailing Paul Washer and be like, you need to get your book right. I'm, it's not that. I'm just, I just want you to be, be aware that those, those are realities in the world that we live in. It's not that we include the Spirit or that salvation involves the Spirit, salvation is a work of God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we're going to consider some of the parts of that work which are attributed, especially, to the spirits. The first heading is the Spirit's work in Christ's atonement. We can turn begin at Luke chapter 1. If you'll pay attention, when you're reading Luke and Acts, you'll see why some have referred to Luke as the evangelist of the Spirit. Luke is is very intentional about his mentioning of the work of the Holy Spirit. The first thing that we see is that the Spirit conceived the Son. The Spirit conceived the Son. Again, I'm weird. I don't like saying it that way, and I'll explain Why in just a minute? But let me read first. The entire work of atonement was dependent upon Jesus' deity and sinless perfection. Two facts that make the virgin birth an absolute necessity. He had to be born of a virgin. According to Luke 1, 34 and 35, what role did the Spirit play in the miraculous conception of Jesus? What was the result? Luke 1, 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, we, we have to start off by saying this is certainly a mystery. There's only so far that we can even begin to, uh, to explain what happened here. But we can at least say that it was by the power and work of the Spirit that Mary was able to conceive a child in her womb while remaining a virgin. Mary, and this is going back to that that heading, Mary conceived the child, the the Spirit gave the conception, but it was Mary. Jesus, the man Jesus, had no earthly father, but he did have an earthly mother. Uh, the womb of Mary was not just a a housing place that the Spirit came down and placed in there a, 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 an embryo of some sort, and then it just grew in there, and then she delivered the child. No, Mary herself conceived the child. Isaiah. says, "...the virgin shall conceive and bear a son." There there would be nothing miraculous about a mere virgin implantation. And, And that would also mean that Mary was not the actual mother of the child. Mary herself conceived the child. And this, as he said in the note, "...is essential for our salvation and a proper understanding of the human nature of Christ. He is true man." Born from a human mother. I, I just, I think it was in a separate study this week, but learned that the Mennonites have historically held that something like the idea that God implanted an embryo into Mary, that she didn't conceive, she was just sort of the housing place where the child grew and then. Uh, from which he was delivered. Well, and I don't know about the the ones who live around here. That's the historic view. I know they they differ. So I don't know about those, but I just thought that was interesting. Um, That would deny a necessary part of the humanity of Christ. It would also deny all of the many prophecies concerning the lineage from which Christ would come. It wasn't that the man Jesus um, was born so that it looked like he came from the lineage of Christ of Judah and David. No, he literally was, as a man, descended from that line. He was conceived by that woman. By the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes, and Mary conceives in her womb a real child, her own biological son, who was the eternal Word of God. Now, again... That's, that's where we have to stop with our articulation. I can go no further, but that's, that's what happened. So the Spirit gave conception. Number two, the Spirit empowered the Son. Turn over to Luke chapter 4. Although Jesus was God, He walked upon this earth as a real man, submitting to the will of His Father and totally dependent on the Spirit's power. We see that in Luke 4, 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Then verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. Here we see that the moment-by-moment moment life of the man Jesus was conducted under the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit. He consistently walked by the spirit, as Paul tells the Galatians, "Walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." Well, what does that look like? This right here. Jesus was a man who walked by the power of the spirit. Turn over to Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Acts 10:38 same author this is still Luke writing Peter is preaching and he refers to God verse 38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with The Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So we see here again, it was by the power of the Spirit that Jesus conducted himself in well doing. He went about doing good, but also that it was by the power of that same Spirit that he did his mighty works. And you could, when you read a passage like this, you can see why there have been cults who have denied the divinity. Of Christ. I mean, you read this and it's like this one is so truly man that we read these passages and we say this is not talking about God. He's doing things in the power of the Spirit. God is with him. How can he be God if God is with him? So truly man that it, it, it baffles the minds of the heretic, the heretics. He says that we could also see passages like Matthew twelve twenty eight. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How did Christ cast out demons? By the Spirit of God. Luke five seventeen. 17, on, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. We say, I thought he was the Lord. He is the Lord. Well, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Why does the Lord need the power of the Lord? Because he's acting as true man. He's living his life as a true man. And all of this we see was by the power of the Holy Spirit that his miraculous deeds were performed. So he lived by the Spirit. The third heading says the Spirit was involved in the offering of the Son. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So it says that Christ offered Himself to God through the eternal Spirit. Now, Typically, if you see something being done through the Spirit, our our, our inclination is to, to something like through the leading of the Spirit or the power of the Spirit, the guiding of the Spirit under the influence or with the help of the Spirit. And the note there, he says, although it is impossible to understand the full meaning and implications of this text, it is clear that the Holy Spirit in some way aided or empowered the Son in offering Himself on Calvary. Just as the Holy Spirit empowered the Son to live a perfect life and carry out His ministry, so He empowered Him to offer Himself as an atoning sacrifice. And we, if we understand the, the yielding up of the life of Christ, the, the climactic act of His obedience, all of, all of His other obedience is carried out by the power of the Spirit, why, why not that same act? So the Spirit was involved in the offering of the Son, and then the Spirit raised the Son. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And He says there in the note in this text the primary idea communicated is that the Father raised the Son. However, it is certainly implied that the Spirit is the power through whom the Father raised Him. And it will be that same Spirit who gives life to our bodies at the resurrection. And you can see that even more if you you look back up in verses 9 and 10 and follow the train of thought from Spirit of God to Spirit of Christ and who's in you and Spirit of life you will see the, the idea is that the Spirit, being the Spirit of God and the Spirit of life, is the one who gives life to us because He's the one who gave life to Christ in His resurrection. So, the Spirit of God was at work in Christ's conception. The Spirit was the power behind Christ's earthly ministry. The Spirit empowered Christ to offer Himself as a sacrifice to God on our behalf. The Spirit's power was at work in Christ's resurrection. So we... We glory in in Christ as the central figure, often, in our salvation. We, we exalt Christ. We glorify Christ. We love Christ. We want more of Christ. And here we're seeing that Christ and His work for us is not without or apart from the Holy Spirit of God. We, we need the Holy Spirit as Christ Himself did. So the Spirit working in Christ's atonement. And then the second heading, the Spirit's work in conversion. And here, we're not thinking of conversion in its more theological sense as repentance and faith or mortification, vivification, putting off sin, putting on righteousness, just that, that narrow view. What he has in view here is really conversion, the, the whole breadth of God's work in, in bringing a person to salvation from regeneration to the sealing of the Spirit. He says that the Scriptures teach that a man is radically depraved and utterly dependent upon a work of the Holy Spirit. As we will see below, in order for man to be saved, the Spirit must regenerate, convict, reveal, indwell, and seal. So those are our our five topics. Regeneration, conviction of sin, the revelation of the truth, the indwelling of the Spirit, and the sealing of the Spirit. So we've moved now from the Spirit in His work uh, in and through Christ for our salvation to now that same Spirit taking that work and applying it to us in our salvation, in, in us personally. So first, the Spirit regenerates the sinner. Let's turn to John chapter 3. The Spirit regenerates the sinner. He says the word regenerate comes from the Latin verb regenerar, which means to create or beget again. The Bible teaches that man is spiritually dead. He is thus unresponsive to God's call of salvation. In order for man to respond, the Spirit must first impart spiritual life to him. What do the following texts teach us about this truth? Now notice what he said there, just a relation to, to what we learned last week. In order for a man to respond, the spirit must first impart spiritual life. There has to be spiritual life before the very first response, even of the soul, to God. We're, we're not talking about you know step, step out of that pew and walk down the aisle response. We're talking about the very first act of a soul that looks and says, I must have that. You can't have that apart from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit must do that. John chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The note says that the phrase born again comes from two Greek words, genao, which means to beget or bring forth, and anothen, which means above or again. So that's why you'll see sometimes born from above or born again, because that word can be can go either way. During the creation of the universe, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters, and He brought forth order in life, Genesis 1-2. This same life-giving work of the Spirit must occur within the sinner before he can hear, appreciate, or respond in obedience to the saving message of God. The gospel. This is very important as we read the scriptures to understand how the Bible portrays the original creation as a, a type, a foreshadowing of the new creation in us. And, and, and re- regeneration is what I mean. The new creation, we, we typically think new creation is coming one day in the future. No, we're, new creation's already started. If any man is in Christ, new creation. That's all, it's already happened. And when when uh, Paul says um, that God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, just like God said, Let there be light. Well, that's what he, what, the same thing happens when he reveals Christ to us. Let there be light. It's a new creation begun in us. That's sort of the picture there. And so we might even say that, that our, our souls naturally... We are to think of the natural man like we read of, of the, the creation prior to the Spirit's work. Without form, void, full of darkness. And yet the Spirit of God comes. And apart from that initiating work of the Spirit coming and, and hovering like a dove over that dark, formless void of a soul, there will be no life. We cannot see or understand or receive the kingdom of God without that. He says, that which is born of or or produced by the flesh is flesh. Only only flesh can reproduce flesh. Or I should say, flesh can only reproduce flesh. Spiritually speaking, your carnal flesh can only produce carnality and fleshiness. Your flesh cannot produce a spiritual response. Even our very best deeds are tainted with sin. So it's only the Spirit of God who can produce in us a response to God that is pleasing to Him. We must have Him to do this work for us in regeneration. The next passage is Titus chapter 3. Let's turn there. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. This passage uses the word regeneration specifically. But, so he's just described who we were. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The note says that two words are used here, regeneration, I'm not going to make any attempt there, but the word means uh, again birth or again origin, and renewal. The importance of the Holy Spirit in the believer's conversion cannot be overemphasized. His initial work in our hearts and minds is the source of our saving response of repentance and faith. Regeneration precedes repentance and faith. You don't repent and believe so that you can be born again because that would be doing something pleasing to God, a a spiritually pleasing act that would be bearing a fruit with no spirit before the regenerating power of the Spirit. It cannot be. Now that passage there that we read in Titus, it can be taken maybe more than two, but at least two ways. You could read it as if the washing of regeneration is one thing, and then the renewal of the Holy Spirit is another thing, or that there is one washing. It's the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I I tend to like that second one, but either way you read it, nobody reads this passage and says, well, there's a washing of regeneration that you do all by yourself, And then there's a renewal of the Holy Spirit that that He performs. It's understood everything here is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is front and center again. It's the Spirit of God alone who can do this regenerating and renewing work in our souls. So it's the Spirit of God who regenerates us, or we could say that God, by His Spirit, performs the work of regeneration. Secondly, the Spirit convicts the sinner of sin. Let's turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. The Spirit convicts the sinner of sin. This is such a comfort to, a, to preachers when people say, you know, that was stinging or that was scathing or you really hurt my feelings or man, that was overwhelming or, or whatever. And I can say, hey, I can't do that, so take it up with somebody else. If there's conviction of sin, real conviction, the Spirit does that. That's that, A preacher can't do that. Before the sinner can recognize his need of salvation, he must recognize the gravity of his sin and the judgment that results from it. This is impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. According to John 16, 7-11, what is one of the primary works of the Spirit whom Christ has sent? into the world. So let's read it. John 16, 7 through 11. Jesus speaking says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, I've, I've spoken with people who said that the complete opposite, that a, a true Christian should never be convicted of sin. That once you become a Christian, you, you are beyond that point, that God would never come and, and convict you of a sin. You point them to this passage and they will say, well, yeah, he says he will convict the world concerning sin, but not us. Well, the problem is Jesus just said that it would be to the advantage of the disciples that He'd go away, that the helper would come to you, the disciples, and then He goes on to explain what the work of the Spirit would be. So I, I, I don't believe it's that we can say that what He meant was He would do these things to unbelievers but never to the believer. We, we ought to feel conviction for our sins. and When we do, that's the work of the Spirit. The note there says that this word, convict, in verse 8 comes from the Greek word elego, which means to expose, convict, or reprove. It describes the work of a prosecuting attorney who presents arguments and examples to expose the guilt of a criminal. Though this may seem harsh, it is actually a great demonstration of God's love. Before a man with a deadly disease will seek a cure, he must be convinced of the reality and gravity of his situation. The Spirit convicts the sinner of, one, his own sin of not believing in Christ. Two, Christ's righteousness, which was demonstrated when God raised Him from the dead. And three, coming judgment. The cross of Christ resulted in Satan's defeat and judgment and is proof that all who follow Him will suffer the same fate. So the Spirit will convict us of sin. And the Spirit does this particularly as the Word of God is brought to bear upon our hearts and lives. The Word of God is open. That's what the Spirit uses or the the Word is almost like a mirror and the Spirit of God is the one who comes and points at you in the mirror and says, see, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong, do you see? Exposes that to us and like he said, that is evidence that God loves us. Sin is destructive. He doesn't want us to stay in our sin. It's interesting to think about what it would have been like to walk on this earth with Christ himself. You, we've been around holy people. I've been, maybe you haven't. I've been around holy people. And I just I feel, I think, I, maybe I should just go back to the house. It's, it's convicting to be around holy people. Think about Christ's disciples who were with him three and a half years, day in and day out, living with he who knew no sin. How convicting that must have been upon them. And yet here he says, I'll do you one better. I won't just give you a living example that makes you is convict you of your sin as you watch him. I'm going to put my spirit in you, inside of you, so that it's your thoughts and your words and all of that that is convicted by the power of the spirit. The spirit does this and makes application of truth to the heart from within us, and that's a blessing. Number 3, the spirit reveals truth. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Spirit reveals truth. One of the greatest works of the Spirit is that He reveals the Son to sinful men so that they might be saved. What do the following texts teach us about this truth? In 1 Corinthians 2, we see how these truths are revealed to men. Verses 10 to 12, these things... From God and, and of God. That's what, that's what we're talking about. The revelation of God. What Paul's saying here, we, we saw this. Only God can reveal God because only God fully knows Himself. So when we have the Spirit of God, we have access to God's self-revelation dwelling in us. He says the Holy Spirit is the agent who reveals God's truth to men. However, it is very important to recognize that the Spirit reveals truth to the believer and the unbeliever primarily through the teachings of the Scriptures. He illuminates our minds and enables us to understand what He Himself has written. Now, if we're just talking about access to a Bible, well, believers and unbelievers alike have access to a Bible. Christians and lost people can read a Bible. What He's not saying is that, that Ink on paper, the, the object of a Bible, is somehow going to make God known to men. No, it, it, What he's saying is that the Spirit of God uses the ink on paper to illumine the mind and give understanding. And so without this work of the Holy Spirit, there can be no real knowledge of God. Even, even if somebody has a copy of the Scriptures. That, that's why we, we are utterly reliant upon the Holy Spirit all the time as we come to the Scriptures to give us understanding. The next passage is John chapter 16. So let's turn there. John 16 verses 13 to 14. The question here is what or who will be the main theme of the Spirit's saving revelation to men? We just saw that when we talk about revelation, we're talking about the revelation of God. God revealing Himself. So what is the main theme of that or who? John 16 Verses 13 and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, and this is Christ speaking, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come, for He will glorify Me. For He will take what is Mine and declare, declare it to you. So Christ says, He will glorify Me. The Spirit will glorify Christ. He says these promises from Jesus are directly or directed primarily to the apostles through whom the New Testament would be written. However, we also find truths that are applicable to all believers. Any true work or revelation of the Holy Spirit will always glorify the person and atoning work of Christ. The Holy Spirit will not draw attention to himself. So who is the main theme? It's Christ. And this is very important in our day because there are many things that are said and done in the name of Christianity, in the name of Christ, that have nothing of the Spirit of God in them. And if we don't understand what the Spirit does, then we will be led to believe that these other things are spiritual, the work of the Spirit. The question is not how busy... Are we with things? The question is not how big are we? How many people are coming? How much noise can we make? How, how many lights can we have flashing? and all not How many people can we attract? Those are not the questions. Those are not the evidences of the, the Spirit. The question is, is Jesus Christ the one that's being exalted? That's the question. That's what the Spirit does. When the Spirit is working in a place... Christ is the one being exalted. Not men, not ministries, not even churches or church names. Christ. Wherever the Spirit of God is at work, Christ will be the one who permeates everything else. Number four, Christ indwells and seals those who believe. Let's turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 indwells and seals one of the most beautiful and powerful truths regarding the Holy Spirit is that he indwells every true believer in Christ and seals us as redeemed children of God through the Spirit the Father and the Son make their abode in us what do these following texts teach about the Spirit's indwelling John 7 37-39 On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We could parallel this with his statement previously in John 4 with the The woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Spirit of God comes to dwell in us. But not as though our bodies, uh, maybe I should say not as though the Spirit comes to be confined within the limitations of our bodies. We could put it this way. He comes to bring a settled, lasting, ongoing manifestation of His work and power in our hearts and lives. So we're reading, again, uh, the language of condescension, the language of of anthropomorphism. Okay, the Spirit of God was, was not at one time way up there. And then He came down and He went inside of you. So that now He's not there anymore. Now He's in here. And He's, he's stuck in here. And He's, he's we're living inside of our bodies. That's not what we're saying. The Spirit of God is God. God, is, God fills all things. Okay? When it says the Spirit dwells within us, again, the, the, the way that I would articulate this is that He comes to bring a settled, lasting, ongoing manifestation of His work and power in our hearts and lives, in that individual person. And this is an eternal work. Because we see... They're from John 4. At the moment of regeneration and the indwelling of the Spirit of God, you have eternal life. At that moment, you have it. If you are a Christian, you are living eternal life right now. You've already begun through the indwelling Spirit to live eternal life. Now, I think that ought to give us great comfort. When the time comes for us to, to give over our physical lives in death, eternal life has already begun. We're just, we're just passing. This, is, this might be why people say someone passed away. We're just, we're just closing our life in one realm and entering into another. We're already living that eternal life. Turn to John 14. John 14, again, the theme is the Spirit's indwelling. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The word abode comes from the Greek word mone, or the word home, from which denotes a room, a dwelling place, or a place to live. And this brings us back to that idea of the, the Trinitarian nature of all of this work. By the Spirit, the Father and the Son come to make a dwelling place in the believer. God dwells in the believer. So, so if someone asks, well, is it the Spirit who indwells the believer, or is it the Father and the Son who indwells the believer? The answer is yes. God indwells through the Spirit. And thus the Father and the Son make their abode or their home in the believer. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, makes the believer, both body and soul, the whole man, the place of the special manifestation of His presence and power, His work. Many parallels to this. We've mentioned things like the the tabernacle and the wilderness and the temple and things like that. It is not as though God, the whole fullness of the divine essence, filled those places and just lived there. No, he said, that's where I'm going to make a, a, a special manifestation of my working, my presence, my power in that place. That's sort of what he does in us. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Romans 8 verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. The text, This text should not be seen as only a warning, but also as a great encouragement. The Holy Spirit indwells every genuine believer from the most mature Christian to the most recent convert. That's very encouraging. If you're a Christian, from the moment of regeneration, you have the fullness of the Spirit at your disposal, so to speak. The Spirit is, it's not as though He comes and says, well, you get a little bit and then I'll I'll get a little bit more, and you, you grow a little bit and then I'll come a little bit more. No, you have the Spirit, boom, right there, in an instant, dwelling within you. And because of that, we belong to Him. The Spirit marks us as His possession, as we see in this next passage, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This text is dealing with the, the Spirit's sealing of believers. I mentioned my visit with the doctor this week. Now, this is one of those areas where uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones had what I think and others agree would be kind of a strange view about the sealing of the Spirit. And and you can find his sermons and stuff. Um, I I think what we read here is accurate. Uh, But if you ever come across that, it will be a great reminder that uh, good, godly, wise Studious, devoted. I can't think of any more adjectives. Men differ on things. And, and that's, that's okay. These, we're talking about things that are beyond our, our, our comprehension. Ephesians 1, 13-14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The word sealed comes from the Greek word sfragizō, which means to stamp with a seal or set a mark upon. In the scriptures, the word is used to denote three ideas: 1, ownership or possession, 2, security, 3, authentication and approval. The word pledge or guarantee comes from the Greek word arabon, which denotes a deposit, earnest or advanced payment to secure a final purchase. The Holy Spirit who indwells, revives, and empowers the believer is also God's seal of ownership and His guarantee of final and full salvation in His presence. So the Spirit is our seal. The Spirit is the the mark of God's ownership and possession of His people. You'll remember when we studied the Revelation, we, we took note that there are two kinds of seals Because there are two kinds of people, right? Some people are marked by the Spirit and others are marked off for the the enemy. The the number of the beast is not uh, a tattoo, an actual tattoo or a vaccination or anything like that. It's simply the the, the alternative to this. You're either marked by the Spirit of God, belonging to God, or you're marked off by the devil, belonging to the devil. That's the picture here. Our God is a saving God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father who designed our salvation and governs its every detail is God. The Son upon whose person and work our salvation depends is God. The Spirit who indwells us and seals us for the day of redemption is God. Each person of the Trinity involved in our salvation is fully God. Therefore, we can have unwavering confidence that the God who began a good work in us will finish it without fail. And we know this because He gives His Spirit. He gives the seal. He marks us as His own. He says, I purchased this one with my blood, the blood of His Son. This one is mine. That is the guarantee. Some of you all remember the layaway at Walmart. This is I'm putting in the layaway. I've already put down the payment. I will come back and I will take this out, it's mine. It's, it's settled. It's mine. That's what the Spirit is. When God gives that, that earnest, that deposit of the Spirit, that's God saying, this one's mine forever. And So every movement forward in grace, or every conviction of sin, where power is given to mortify a sin, or ever every pleasure in righteousness where... There is power to walk in it, to put on Christ. As we move from one degree of glory to another in our sanctification, every little step, we we think baby steps, baby steps. It's so small, it's so insignificant, it's so little. Every one of them ought to be a reminder that God has given me His Spirit. He's not finished with me yet, but He will certainly finish the work. We, we, we want the work to be finished tomorrow. I want to be fully sanctified tomorrow. Okay, that can't happen unless you don't make it home tonight or you die in your sleep. But every little step that we take, it ought to be a reminder to us, God's still working. God, and, he, and He will finish the work. He can't leave off the work. So we see that the living God, the God who is, is in Himself a bottomless ocean of incomprehensible perfection, we get to the end of a study like this, and we say, um, "Could you repeat that?" We don't feel like we we've got our minds wrapped around God. Surely, we we, we say, I, "I think I'm getting there. I know a little bit more, but I need to I need to hear it all again." Incomprehensible, and this is the God who is said in Scripture to his people you are my portion and i am your portion forever and ever we are we are together that this god and our confession says to him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship service or obedience as creatures they owe unto the creator and whatever he is further pleased to require of them, this God is worthy of our worship and our obedience to the fullness of its extent, all that we can offer. And we will never uh, out... and This is it sounds like we're in an old-timey church. You can't outgive God. You will never out-give, out-worship, out-praise, out-obey the goodness that God has lavished upon us. You can't. All right? Well, instead of closing with a prayer, let's stand and close with a, a corporate prayer, a corporate singing of the doxology.